0: now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including host Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests, will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, The Mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life at work and in business learn more and check out the show notes at the mentorsradio.com. that's the mentorsradio.com. and now here's your mentor
1: welcome i'm dan hesse and i'll be your host today thanks for joining us today's guest mentor is gail mcgovern who's had one of the most distinguished and eclectic careers i'm aware of she rose from being a programmer at at&t to become president of at&t's business markets group and later the Consumer Markets Group, the company's two largest business units. She left AT&T at the top of her game to become president of personal investments at Fidelity, then went across town to become a professor at the Harvard Business School. And finally, she found her purpose in 2008 when she joined the American Red Cross as its CEO, a position she still holds. During her tenure, Gail has overseen the American Red Cross response to multiple high profile disasters around the country and around the world including hurricanes Sandy, Harvey, Irma, and Maria, as well as the multitude of tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, wildfires, and other disasters that affect our country each year. Gail earned a bachelor's degree from Johns Hopkins and an MBA from Columbia, and she has been recognized as alumna of the year from both universities. She's also been recognized by Fortune as one of the 50 most powerful women in corporate America. Welcome, Gail.
2: Thank you,
1: Dan. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's uh, it's my privilege to have you. So, you know, you and I are from the same generation. We won't say what generation that is. Um, so both of our parents kind of grew up through, during the Depression. I think both our dads fought in the Second World War. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how that impacted you. And uh, And in particular, tell us how it's possible for somebody who grew up kind of in Dodgers territory to become a lifelong Yankees fan.
2: Well, um, my dad did fight in World War II. He was there uh, at Omaha Beach, and also he was there when they liberated Dachau. So he had some uh, bad experiences and he didn't speak about them very much, but uh, you know, I'm sure that had a great deal um, in terms of molding him. And um, your comment about the Yankees, I mean, I was born in Brooklyn Uh, We moved to the suburbs of New Jersey uh, when I was seven, but my parents were always New Yorkers. Um, They would, you know, if they wanted to go see a movie, we had a movie theater right in our town, but they would drive into New York and go to Times Square. Um, They decorated my room with Yankee pennants when I was only three years old. So (laughs) I didn't have much of a choice. Um, And I had an idyllic childhood. You know, we... We're in a community, quarter-acre plots, uh, split-level homes. Most of the homes are built um, by veteran families that um, took advantage of a GI Bill way back when, and uh, the streets are filled with people my age, baby boomers, and, um, you know, my parents really taught me how to give back, um, not by words, but by actions. My dad uh, my dad was an optometrist. He examined kids' eyes um, for free in um, uh, vulnerable communities. My mom was a Girl Scout leader, um, and it, it wound up instilling in me the desire to give back as well.
1: Um, that's uh, that's terrific. You do. It does sound like you had wonderful parents. Another thing that you and I share in common, and I had wonderful parents is that um, I went away to a men's college that went co-ed. They started admitting women my sophomore year. You were, you know, again, kind of a, the different side of that. You transferred to a historical, historically men's college when they started admitting women. Did being one of the few women in a kind of a male-dominated place like Johns Hopkins, did that help prepare you for your business career
2: you know it's an interesting question and the the short answer is yes but at the time i didn't realize it mm-hmm. so there were 50 women 1900 men and it was rare if i ever attended a class with even another one single woman so i found myself always being the only woman in the room and as my career progressed it felt Easier, I believe, for me because I, I was used to that environment. Uh, made a lot of male friends. Um, you know, went to a lot of baseball games. Um, so it it was a little bit strange at first, but once I got used to it, it felt there was a level of normalcy to it. And as I said, you know, in business, um, particularly back when uh, I did find myself the only woman in the room, and it happened pretty frequently.
1: So, you know, you and I, we both kind of started our careers at, at AT&T, I'm, I'm hitting all these common points early on. But, uh, you know, I don't think there's any company in history that I'm aware of that did a better job of developing leadership talent than AT&T back in that era, where if you were recognized as somebody with leadership potential, they moved you into different assignments, different disciplines, different parts of the country or the world, Really trying to get you to learn the entire business. Tell us a little bit about the assignments you had along the way from starting, you know, you were a coder, you know, a programmer, all the way to becoming president of its two largest business units, which I think, you know, between them were like 60 plus billion dollars in revenue, which back in the 90s was real money.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I agree with you. Uh ATT was great at developing talent. And, um, you know, they had leadership programs, they had mentors. Uh, it really made a, a big difference. And I, I believe that they were ahead of their time um, when they were doing this. You know, when I became an officer at AT&T, there were only seven women officers but um, by the time I left, it was about 25% female officers. And that is really a testament to, to how well the organization, you know, really found good talent and also found diverse talent. And um, you know, I was also very fortunate that I had a lot of mentors along the way that got me from being a computer programmer to, you know, running a large business unit. And, um, you know, it it actually I think was unusual back then uh, to put so much emphasis on developing people. I think, you know, nowadays people realize that the company's only as good as the people that are there. But back then it was almost like, you know, a a trademark of what my experience was at AT AT&T.
1: We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, American Red Cross CEO Gail McGovern. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on List of Shows to listen to our past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are
0: listening to the Mentors Radio Show. And now back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with Red Cross CEO Gail McGovern. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more on any device at any time. Subscribe at thementorsradio.com. So, uh, so Gail, you mentioned mentors. Do any mentors come to mind, and what did they teach you?
2: So. I think if it weren't for the fact that I had strong mentors, I'd still be uh, a coder. Um, you know, I really loved programming. I felt like somebody was paying me to do the New York Times crossword puzzle every day. Um, but it, it became clear that, you know, I was beginning to get promoted through the ranks of IT. And all of a sudden I started getting bored. Um, and I, I, Felt like I could have been at any company in their IT department. It would feel the same way. I didn't know what we were selling. I didn't understand customers. I didn't understand our products. So I begged this uh, vice president, um, John Wyman, to uh, let me join his organization in sales. And he said, no, you don't have enough background. And we went, I, I think it was three meetings. I said, please, you know, I really think I belong in sales. And uh, I think he got frustrated with me begging like that. And what he did is he said, fine, I'm gonna give you a branch in Manhattan. I think it was like the second to largest branch. Um, we had the garment district. We I think, had I think the jewelry district.
1: Yeah, I think that's when I met
2: you. I you, think you that's exactly when I met you as well. And, I was a branch manager. And um, I didn't quite know what I was doing, but as I came up the learning curve, I loved it. I really loved it. And um, it, I think I was in that job for about three and a half years. And then uh, once again, my mentor reached down and said, You know, we got to start thinking about the rest of your career and what you're going to do next. And um, he noticed when he was coaching me, I didn't have a, a degree or uh, my MBA. And at Hopkins, I was majoring in quantitative sciences, which is, you know, very intellectually stimulating, but not very practical. So against my will, I went to one of these executive programs at Columbia and um, it, it taught me so much. I really, I, when we would get the annual report, Dan, I would look at the pictures because I couldn't read the financial statements. And after getting my MBA at Columbia, that's really when I, my career moved. And I was very curious, I did a stint in operations, I did a, a, a rotational assignment at Bell Labs. You know, I moved around quite a bit and I kind of described my career as not a ladder, more like a lattice. I took a lot of um, uh, lateral moves during that period of time. And um when i finally had the opportunity to run a pnl i felt like i was ready for it um and that probably would not have ever happened had it not been for strong mentorship and you know to this day i'm grateful for it
1: by the way that's a, a great um lesson about getting the bro- broad enough experience early on that prepares you uh, so you don't top out too early. I've I've seen too many people move too quickly up, we'll call it one smokestack, and that's it because they just don't know the business. By the way, you mentioned PL. Um, because that's really I think that's really also an important part of development, having that experience. Um, you know, I think back on my ATT career, the executives that really stand out are the women. And I think it's because honestly, you just had to be a lot better. Than me and my peers to get to, you know, to get to those positions, especially about, you know, especially in the C-suite, you know, what are, what are the, were the challenges that you found being a woman, especially getting the big operating p l jobs, which were, you know, which is really what made you stand out, I I believe.
2: Well, first of all, as I mentioned, I really, once I got my MBA, I really wanted to go from department to department to understand how they operated. So by the time I got that first P&L job, I was ready for it. But, um, you know, even back then, Dan, um, we have a mutual friend, Jeff Whiteson. Uh, I, I would go into his office and say, I'm about to do this. Is that a smart thing to do? And he would say, yep, you got it. And, you know, every once in a while he'd say, nope, I don't think you should do that. So I not only had good mentors, I had good colleagues But, you know, it it was, you know, back a long time ago when women weren't in high-powered jobs. And very often I would feel like um, people that just met me would kind of subtract 10 IQ points from me until I opened up my mouth. And um, very often I got, wow, I've never had to work for a woman before along my career. And, you know, I would assure them that it wasn't too terrible and that they would find out I wasn't horrible so you know, it was a little bit more difficult for women than men back then. But um, you know, I just got a lot of support, and you know, as I said, I was used to being the only woman in the room. And you know, now when I, I look at AT and T, and you know, even right before I left, um, there were so many women that it wasn't an oddity. Mm-hmm. It, it and once that happened. The glass ceiling sort of broke for a lot of people.
1: This is Dan Hesse. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show, and we are with Gail McGovern. Um, so, Gail, you talked about the importance of some of the roles or jobs, experiences that you had, as well as mentors. What were the particular, we'll call them skills, that you believe were key to your success that you had? What attributes, skills, capabilities?
2: So, I think, probably most important are our leadership skills. Um, How to gather a diverse group of thinkers and throw a problem at them and have them solve it in a way that is better than anybody could have done individually. Um, Creating high-performing teams that um, have different skill sets that debate and argue, and at the end, come up with a great solution, you know, as a, uh, as a final product. Um, so I think leadership skills are really important. The other thing is teamwork. Um, you know, I had a boss once who told me, you should wake up in the morning every day and try to figure out how you can help your colleagues. And I was a middle manager when they said that to me, and it really struck home it really struck home. You know, rather than trying to compete for the next rung in the ladder, just forging those relationships, figuring out ways you can help them. I I distinctly remember having a difficult time with somebody in operations because they were installing the stuff I was selling um, and missing deadlines. And I, I remember going in there and say, how can I help you? Is there a product that... I, I should stop selling, so it, it would help you. And as soon as that happened, um, you know, our whole relationship changed. And you know, so I think it's leadership skills, it's forging relationships, helping the people that are around you, and um, also experiencing a lot of different things um, along the way uh, that I think are 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 keys.
1: Well, as someone who is your peer. A few times. That was a great attribute of yours. And you know, I remember, like when we were up at the, C, you know, in the C suite at AT and T. And you mentioned Jeff. You know, you know, Jeff was there. You were there. I were there. We were all kind of the same, uh, the, the same age. You know, I, you know, I didn't think of you as competitors. We were just trying to make AT better. It was something about you know, and I think you had a lot to do with that, just the way that you approached your job uh, and. And tried to help me, you know, I was running that fledgling wireless outfit out there, which, uh, which, which was a blast and and, and you helped make it that way. So you're at the top of your game, Um, you're a perfect age to be the potential CEO uh, at AT AT&T. And, you know, even though I loved working with you, you did think about, okay, who are going to be my competitors for the top job and your name would have topped the list and you stun me and everybody and leave. Fidelity. Can you tell us why?
2: So um, as you pointed out at the very beginning of this, you you said that I ran the business markets division, then I ran the consumer markets division. And even though I got a bump up in salary for running the consumer market uh, division, the thing about the business market is that it's complex. It's, um, you're, you're putting networks in to Big, large businesses, and it, it's you know a it's an intellectually stimulating um, role to be in. And not only are you selling to IBM, but you're also selling to Joe's Pizza Parlor. And so every day it was its new strategy and you know mind bending um, solutions. And then when I went to the consumer markets division, we really only had two levers to pull. One was telemarketing and calling people while they were eating dinner and begging them to switch carriers, which wasn't all that pleasant. (laughs) And the other was advertising, tons and tons of advertising. And that was kind of it. And I looked at our new CEO and I figured he'd probably stay for 10 years. And I thought, I think I've kind of topped out for now. And so for the very first time in my life, Dan, I answered, the call from a headhunter. And when he described the job at Fidelity, um, I thought, wow, I'm going to learn new things. I had to get my broker's license because the law is that if even one broker down there in the organization works for you, you have to pass this thing. So, you know, here I am cramming for a five-hour test. You know, the market was something so new to me. And I just, was ready for a change. And I fell in love with Fidelity. It really was a great experience for me.
1: We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, American Red Cross CEO, Gail McGovern. Remember, you can listen live to our Saturday broadcasts anywhere in the world by going to San Francisco 860, The Answer. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio Show.
0: And now... Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse,
1: and I'm with talented executive Gail McGovern discussing making big changes in in one's career. So after a few years at Fidelity, Gail, you leave, you go across town to become a professor at the Harvard Business School, another big change in career uh, direction. Why'd you do that?
2: So, you know, it's a funny thing. I the The newspapers were becoming littered with articles about WorldCom and Enron and, you know, all this corporate malfeasance. And I got this romantic notion in my head that if I could only touch tomorrow's leaders, maybe I could play a small role in preventing that. So I picked up the phone, made a cold call. Next thing I know, I'm having an interview. And the next thing I know, I got an offer to be... Uh, to teach marketing. And I did love my stint at at Harvard. It's amazing. But I also figured out probably midway the first year I was there that these students were so smart that, you know, I don't know how much I'm really going to get to teach them, but I had a ball. You know, we wrote cases, I wrote articles, the students were so bright and earnest. And I think I helped a lot when it came to career planning and, the like. And I I loved it there. I mean, it started getting a little old at the very end, because for the first four years, I was teaching intro to marketing. Then I went over and taught a, a elective course in marketing. Um, and then I got the phone call to consider the Red Cross. And I have to tell you, Dan, it was like the whole thing. It was like a tumbler. Um, I thought this is what I was meant to do. Mm. And, um, to top it off, I, I had my students do a pitch for me to take a brand that was struggling and, and revitalize it. So my very first students came in and dropped a deck in front of me and it was the American Red Cross. So I thought, okay, this is a sign. <laughs> and the next thing you know, um, you know, I I took the plunge. Um, the place was struggling financially. And uh, I thought if I could help save this storied institution that is so important to so many people that it would be the the pinnacle of my career. And so I knew it was going to be a challenge, but I was ready for it. And I uh, I took the plunge.
1: I'd say so. uh, (laughs) By the way, this is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio Show. We are talking with iconic leader Gail McGovern. So I can understand why the Red Cross would attract anybody, but especially somebody like you. I mean, I'm really glad, you know, we talk about, you know, you use some examples of corporate malfeasance that we're seeing um, concepts like purpose uh, becoming so much more important in the private sector you know being discussed in boardrooms by by senior leadership and what have you as an essential element of culture. Can you describe uh, the purpose and and what the culture is like at the Red Cross?
2: So you know it's funny because we really needed a financial turnaround. Um, desperately. I mean, we had an unfunded pension fund of over a billion dollars. We had contribution margin of negative $209 million. Um, And we had taken out so many loans, $600 million worth of loans. We tapped out our lines of credit. And that's what I walked into. And Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I guess this is going to require a culture change. But in fact, it didn't the people mm-hmm. at the American Red Cross will do anything to fulfill the mission and they they feel like they're part of a part of something that's bigger than they are and you know i look back at my stint in corporate and i think i probably should have led that way even in corporate i mean you know we weren't just doing long distance we were connecting people with the people they love i mean that's mm-hmm. what you know, put AT&T, that's a higher purpose. And, you know, Fidelity, we had a higher purpose of making people's financial dreams come true and letting them retire. So, you know, I look back at, at my first days there and, you know, I just told it straight. I told everybody, here is what's going on. They didn't quite understand the hole they were in. And I basically said, guys, we have to save the American Red Cross. I mean, what could be more noble than that? And people just ran to it. And it's very different leading at a nonprofit than a for-profit. But, you know, leading from the heart, which is what you need to do in a nonprofit, it's not a bad way to lead in a for-profit either. And uh, I learned a lot. I learned from our volunteers. I mean, I, I have to say, you know, I would say, okay, everybody, I've heard all the input. This is great, you know, so now we're going to do this. And, you know, our volunteers would say, no. (laughs) I was like, I wasn't used to that. You know, I was used to being a leader where people would say yes. And I learned that if you lead through the power of your ideas, not through the power of your office, it's a bit humbling, but it makes things happen. It really does.
1: So the culture
2: is amazing.
1: By the way, following up on a point you made, what are the differences in, in kind of the the levers you have to pull and not and are you know that are available to you and not available to you, running a nonprofit versus a for profit and when one comes to mind for me is just stock price and you know th- things that you know that are motivation you know are motivating and, and directional and, and that, that help you lead.
2: So I am not exaggerating when I tell you that I, the senior leadership team that I have the privilege of leading is better than any team I've ever worked with. Mm. Um, you know, I I think that a lot of people want to work to make a difference and that stock price is seductive. The bonuses are seductive. The, you know, company car, it's all seductive. But at the end of the day, um, people want to make a difference. They truly want to make a difference. And I, you know, I think my my one superpower is staffing. I, I, I'm really good at staffing. And I look for only two things. Are you really smart and are you nice? And that is a lethal combination. If every person around your table embodies those two things, you can, you can pull off almost anything. And if the people around your table are diverse thinkers, it helps even more because that way they can solve problems and they're smart enough to solve a problem, but they're nice enough not to make people feel small while they do it. And you know, that's the culture at the American red cross and it would, it would be nice if we had some, some stock. Yeah. It would be great. It would be nice if we had, you know, really big bonuses. Yeah. I'm sure everybody would love that too, but at the end of the day, it is so gratifying and that's why i think you know if you lead from the heart and you tap into what the higher purpose is of the organization that you're in um it makes it a lot easier
1: by the way i think you're right i think purpose is a bigger driver than than money is in in the in the private sector as well so i think there's a lot the private sector can learn uh from uh from from you We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Gail McGovern, talking about her remarkable career. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio Show.
0: And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with trailblazing executive Gail McGovern. So, Gail, what have been your highest points and your lowest points as CEO of the Red Cross?
2: So um, probably my lowest point happened uh, three weeks after I joined the American Red Cross. And there was a horrific earthquake in Sichuan Valley in uh, China. And it was my very first disaster. And at that point, intellectually, I thought, you know, this, this isn't that easy, you know, that hard to solve. You're just getting, it's materialist logistics. You're getting this stuff here and you're moving it into a shelter. You're getting the blood out of here. You're putting it into somebody's arm. And, um, I saw the death and destruction. We heard from a young seven-year-old girl describing what happened that day. And she and 14 kids were spared because they were outside painting, um, watercolors for art class. Mm -hmm. And as she was telling us this through an interpreter behind her was a pile of rubble where 200 children, um, were buried alive. And that was my wake up call. It was like, this isn't about material logistics. This is about helping people in their darkest, darkest hours. And, um, it, it just struck me. This is not just a typical business. This is people are depending on you. And, you know, I came home. I, it really shook me up. It, it truly did. Um, but, you know, I look back at it and realized that the Chinese Red Cross were doing amazing things. And it really kind of lifted me up to realize what our mission is all about. And I have been in so many shelters, so many shelters. And you know what's amazing about it, actually, is, you know, people get teary. They want to tell you their story, how they lost their home, how they lost everything. And by the time they're done pouring their heart out, they're going, but I'm going to build it back. I'm resilient. I'm going to be able to move forward. And I I look at that and I think, you know, Say what you want about our country. We are resilient and we also are very generous. I mean, the generosity of the American public lifts me up every day, whether it's a million dollar gift from a company or the dollar bill that was crumpled up in a letter saying, This came from the tooth fairy. Can you use it to help someone? Mm -hmm. I mean, so I guess the highs are seeing the generosity, the lows are seeing people that have lost everything and trying to help them get back on their feet.
1: This is Dan Hesse. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show and we're with American Red Cross CEO, Gail McGovern. So Gail, um, you're a cancer survivor. Um, How does that impact the way you approach your work and just life in general?
2: You know, um, I, I, I got cancer twice actually. And um, I guess the the best way to describe it is after I, my treatment was over both times and I, everything seems sweeter. It, it's a strange feeling, you know, like food tastes better. Colors look more vibrant. Um, you know, you're, you, you are so grateful for every day that you have. And, you know, I get my films once a year and when I get a clean bill of health, uh, you know, if it happens all over again, it's like, you know, this is a beautiful life that we've all been given, you know, and we need to make the best of it. And so, um, it's definitely impacted my, it's impacted my life in frightening ways. Cause my family was a mess during this, but also it's lifted me up from the standpoint of, Hey, if I can get through that, I can get through anything. I mean, that's really, it became a mantra after that. If I hmm. could get rid of breast cancer twice, I can do anything.
1: So um, how do you define success?
2: So I I define success based on how happy you are. If you are happy in your life, that's success. You know, if you have the privilege of working with people who are um, who put themselves second and put the mission first, that's success. And, you know, I have a beautiful daughter. She just got married. I have a fabulous son-in-law. I have two great step sons. And, you know, I, I think that's success. I think, you know, people that, that wake up every day and feel good because they're alive, that's success.
1: You know, it's interesting. um, You know, I interviewed Neil Young uh, and asked him, you know, how do you define success? And he's been through a lot of, we'll call it health scares during his life. And he defined success as being alive, Um, which, you know, for somebody who hasn't been been through that, you know, I I had, you know, different thoughts around success. Um, You know, I think that, um, you know, sometimes what's surprising is that how many, what we would call successful people, Aren't happy. I mean, you you read, you know, you see suicides and other things happening, you know, all the time of people who we would consider the most successful, or you know, bad things happening to them because they do do things that indicate, you know, levels of of uh, you know depression, not in in a necessarily clinical way, but uh, but but in other ways. So, you know, I'm just interested in in especially successful people like you. You know, how you define success and and how you define happiness. Um you know, I could always tell when I was near your office at AT&T, because there was always laughter uh, coming, you know, out of your office, you know, whether whether things were good or bad, because, you know, we had a lot of both back in those days, how, how important to you is, you know, is humor in in the, you know, in the workplace?
2: You know, it's so funny, you should say that, because um, I have a young woman that I've been mentoring, and I said to her, you know what? make sure you have a belly laugh, a big belly laugh at least once a day, no matter what's going on. It just, and, um, you know, I, my leadership team, they're smart, they're nice, and they're really funny. They're really funny. And, you know, it used to be, I couldn't even settle them down before a meeting because they were bantering and teasing. And, you know, I would say people, people, but I would be laughing. I mean, it's, it is, um, it is something that gives you endorphins. And it, it also helps you not to feel, not to take yourself too seriously. You know, I mean, I take my work and, you know, my mission, and I've done this my whole career, I take it seriously, but that doesn't mean you have to take yourself too seriously. And that laughter, um, it just made it a fun place to work.
1: We'll be back with our guest mentor, Red Cross CEO Gail McGovern. You will find all of our show notes and links at the mentorsradio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of our shows. This is Dan Hesse,
0: and this is the Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with American Red Cross CEO, Gail McGovern, discussing finding purpose in work and life. So, Gail, um, you know, I just finished renegotiating my home insurance bill with my uh, actually a new carrier because my old carrier stopped insuring actually Kansas City because of all of the storms and, and weather events and what have you. Uh, So insurance rates are skyrocketing across the country because of the number of natural disasters. How do you keep up with it? And do you have the resources? I mean, do, do you see it like we do? My guess is you do. And do you have the resources to deal with kind of our changing world?
2: So there's no doubt that these large disasters are happening way more frequently. In fact, I recently saw a chart that showed back in the 80s There were 118 days between disasters on average. And now in the 2020s, it's only 21 days. And these are billion-dollar disasters based on insurance and adjusted for inflation. So we're seeing it. And the way to cope with it, um, we need more of everything. I mean, we need more warehouses, more cots, more blankets, more volunteers, more fleet. So we're adding to our capacity And we are also following people once they leave our shelters, helping them with items like health and uh, hunger and housing. Um, And we've really adapted our mission to help the people that keep getting clobbered by disasters because of their geography and, you know, their social vulnerability. So we're scrambling to be able to do this. We've been asking for some large transformative gifts that have really helped us get jump-started. We used to pull people out of their day jobs and ask them to help with the response. But nowadays, honestly, that doesn't work. So we set up a, a command center that is always in action. And on the few days that there's no disasters, they're doing training and volunteer recruiting. So we're seeing what you're describing And, you know, we're keeping up with it. We use a lot of technology. We are keeping up with it. But I have to tell you, it is um, it's really an issue for our country,
1: by the way. um, And you described it. Well, is there is there anything you think that the public doesn't know or understand about the Red Cross in terms of what you do?
2: Yeah. You know, I think most people think of us as a, a group that responds to disasters. Many people know we Uh, are responsible for um, 40% of the blood supply. Um, There are a lot of people that tell us, oh, I took my lifeguard certification from you, so they know we do training. I think the thing they don't know is what we do for the men and women in the armed forces. We do a lot for the military. And um, it's something I'm very proud of. And uh, we just take good care of them while they're deployed. So we follow them around in hospitals and Uh, military bases. So that's part of our mission that most people don't understand.
1: So in reflecting on your 15 years, good years, uh, um, leading the Red Cross, is there anything you do differently?
2: Oh, my gosh. Um, You know, nothing specific comes to mind. I think there were probably, you know, we've made mistakes along the way. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But I think what we've gotten very good at is when we make a mistake, we admit it, and we course correct, and that I think is a is a is really symbolic of of good leadership. You try something, doesn't work. You say that didn't work, and you try something else.
1: That's uh, that's that's great to keep in mind. Well, thanks for joining us today, Gail. Your amazing, diverse, and very successful career is a model of competence, excellence, and purpose. Oh. To our listeners. Please go to mentorsradio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us online on any device at any time on any podcast platform like Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. Join us next week at the same time for another edition of The Mentors Radio Show. Until then, this is Dan Hessey signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning.